Tonight I want to talk about uh, something of the spirit of our practice and how we approach it, and also to define some of the terms that we've been using and will continue to use and hopefully put a little more context around what we're doing. Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master who founded San Francisco Zen Center, had a lovely statement about the spirit of Dharma practice. He said, we have to be serious about our practice, but if we're too serious, we lose our way. And this is a good reminder for all of us in an intensive practice situation to try and uh, find that lightness of mind and lightness of spirit that Joseph talked about last night. In doing meditation practice in our tradition, it's easy to get um, overly attached to some of the fruits of practice. You know, we can get really interested in the concept of enlightenment, for instance, or having had some uh, very good sittings, even in the past or on this retreat, we might get attached to the strong concentration, feelings of bliss or peacefulness, have a very strong motivation to recover those. But that kind of uh, approach to practice where we're aiming towards some achievement or attainment can wrap us up in knots. And I got a a little feedback on this one time in California. It was a period of practice where I had a lot of zeal for practice. I had a lot of motivation, which in our tradition we call Dhamma Chanda, love for the Dharma, desire for the Dharma. But it was probably a little out of balance with uh, the sense of relaxation. I'd been living in California for a few years, and uh, I went to see a psychic. You know, it's something you have to do after you're in California for a few years, kind of like <laughs> getting a driver's license. You go to see a go to see a psychic. And my friends had gone to see this guy and raved about him, so I thought I'd go. And I went into his office in San Francisco and walked in the door, and he sort of drew back almost in alarm, as though my energy was pushing him off his chair. And he said, whoa, he said, slow down. You're in too much of a hurry to get there. He said, don't you know that God comes more often to those who don't want him so much? <laughs> so I realized that I had to balance this Dhammachanda with the opposite side of the spectrum, which is this quality of relaxation that we've been talking about. And yet it's possible to go too far that way also. If you come in and you're too relaxed, you you might say, oh, I think I'll sleep the first few days. It's so cozy in my room. And it takes about three days to get through the tiredness. Then I'll come back to the hall. You know, the practice isn't going to unfold so well. So we have to find some kind of approach that is somewhere in between these two. Not too much striving, but also not too loose. And we like to talk about this uh, place in the middle as what we call a right attitude to practice. One teacher expressed this quality of right attitude with three simple instructions. He said, this is how you can approach your meditation. Relax, observe, and allow. Just that simple. So let's talk about each of those uh, three steps. The first step is to relax. As soon as you sit down, it's good to relax. Partway through a sitting, if you notice that your shoulders are starting to migrate up around your ears, it's good to notice that and consciously relax again. At any time during the day when you feel wound up, either physically or mentally, it's good to remember 
to relax. Relaxation is almost a magical instruction for our whole system. When we can actually tune in and just drop a level, it sort of sends a message, I think it's throughout our nervous system, that says things are okay. If I can relax, things are okay, and the situation is not too bad. This quality of being able to relax expresses a very important state of mind that we talk about a lot in Buddhism called trust or confidence. It basically says that we can trust in the moment to support us, to be uh, workable, and we can trust in our own hearts and minds to find a way to work in this moment. So when we're able to relax, it really it soothes the whole body and mind, and it sort of lays to rest some of those, those flutters of worry or anxiety. Well, so then it's a fair question, well, why can I trust? Or what can I trust in? Miyoshin uh, spoke last night very effectively on the three refuges of trust in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. I think that's always helpful to reflect on. But maybe more immediate um, to us as we're coming into our our direct experience of the moment is trusting in some uh, purity in our own heart and mind, in our own citta, this word that really means both heart and mind. When the four of us were thinking about um, putting this retreat together, and it's I think we've said it's kind of an experiment for us as as much as it is for you. Um, I think what we wanted to to convey to you was a sense that you can explore and discover your own experience and find within yourself some kind of refuge that is part of your direct experience. You don't have to go looking outside yourself. And it's the reason that we're talking a lot about awareness and the knowing and coming into the present and investigating that side of things because it has the potential to be a really wonderful refuge and place of trust. And I want to talk a little more about that later. What we find is that the mind itself has a certain strength and purity that doesn't depend on the circumstances around us. So the circumstances don't have to be perfect for each of us to be able to relax. The mind may be a little bit scattered. There may be thoughts. There may be some flickers of disturbing emotion, some sadness or apprehension, anxiety. The body may not be entirely comfortable. You may be sleepy. You may be bored. That's all okay. The circumstances just have to be sort of good enough. And maybe most of our moments are kind of good enough for us to trust and bring out that quality of relaxing. Once we relax, the next step is to Observe, pay attention, see what our our experience is showing us. It really helps to be interested. I think there was a question this afternoon about um, how does one become interested if one is not supposed to be actively doing. And I think a, a really helpful ingredient is interest. When we're interested in our experience, then the presence is there, the willingness to look and feel is there. This is really the heart of being awake. You know, I'm sure you know that the word Buddha 
in the Pali language that his teachings have come down in simply means the awake one. So really what we're trying to discover for ourselves moment after moment is how do we wake up? Interest, alertness, a willingness to learn are all really important pieces of this waking up um, process which is actualizing our own awake nature. So we want to, as far as possible, not spend too much of our time drifting into thoughts of past and future and fantasy and analysis and imaginary conversations, although that will happen again and again. But we want to have the willingness to come back into the present moment, turn to our experience, and see what's happening. So we'll observe our body and the knowing of it, our relationship to that, our mind, the knowing of it, the relationship to that, and the environment, the knowing of it and our relationship to that. And we'll talk in more detail about all of these um, focuses. The third aspect of this instruction is allow. And that just means once you're relaxed and you pay attention, you let things be the way they are. You allow your experience to be just as it is. Everything happens from past causes and conditions. We aren't in control of creating this moment the way it's unfolding. But there are so many factors that have gone into its unfolding just as it is. And based on all those factors, it couldn't be any different. Couldn't be any different. That's why one of one of our colleagues, Sylvia Borstein, who's a teacher also at Spirit Rock in California, likes to say when somebody asks how she is, she says, I couldn't be any better because it's the literal truth. We are the way we are. The moment is the way it is. We'd like to have our experience always be a certain way, you know, a pleasant way, an uplifting way. It's not always like that. And there's this kind of universal human tendency to try to tweak it so that it is like that. And if you take a look at a lot of our thoughts and activities during meditation, I think you'll see that we're constantly trying to adjust the experience to make it more pleasant or as pleasant as possible. But we forget that this attempt to control things carries a certain price. And the price, you could say, is our peace of mind or our freedom. You know, there's this um, image from the Buddhist tradition of samsara being this uh, never-ending round of birth and death and birth and death. And you can interpret that in a very long time frame of many human lives. You can interpret that in a moment-to-moment way, how we go through the day sort of incarnating as different beings the sad being, the sleepy being, the frightened being, the ecstatic being, the joyful being, the contented being, the work, the worker being, all the way through our day. But being the sense of being born and dying again and again and again, constituting this round of samsara. And this Tibetan teacher said that the very essence of samsara is correcting. This whole wheel is put in motion by our attempts to make things better than they are. And conversely, 
the relaxation into freedom comes out of accepting things the way they are. So this allowance is, is not only a kind of convenient easing of friction, but it turns out to be a very profound teaching about how we can best um, live with great peace of mind um, and great ease in the world. So this is one teacher's pointing to this right attitude. Relax, observe, and then allow. Another teacher uh, took this sort of allowing piece and refined it, made it a little more precise. And uh, for this, we owe a lot of appreciation to a Burmese teacher named Sayadaw Utejaniya. Um, all four of us have had a bit of contact with him over the past few years and have appreciated his teachings a lot. He says that the way we can check our practice attitude is just to ask ourselves a simple question in any moment. And he recommends that we ask it often. In my mind at this moment, in relation to my meditation, is there greed, is there aversion, or is there delusion? Now you may recognize these as the, what are called the three kilesas, or torments of mind, sometimes translated as defilements, that are the root cause of all the problems in our life personally, in the life of the society, for, for all of us as humans. Greed, wanting more than we need. Aversion, the stance of negativity or disliking what is. Delusion, the, the stance of being confused or not in touch, not seeing and understanding the way things are. So we can take a look at any moment. Is there greed? Is there aversion? Is there delusion? Well, those can be a little abstract. So Sayadaw recommended three simple questions that are very practical to allow us to answer that question. Am I wanting something to happen that isn't happening? So when I'm sitting, for instance, in meditation, am I wanting the mind to be peaceful? Am I wanting the body to be really calm and pleasant? Am I wanting the lunch bell to ring so the sitting will end and I can go out? These are the influences of greed or wanting. Is there aversion means, am I resisting something that's happening? There's a pain in my knee and I wish it would go away. There's a feeling of restlessness in the body and I don't like it. Or for delusion, the question is, am I knowing or not knowing what's happening? So there are many layers of delusion. We'll talk more about them as the retreat goes on. But in a very simple way, am I not in touch with my experience in the present moment? Then delusion is present in the mind. So I want to recommend this practice to you. I think we'll probably all talk more about it as the retreat goes on. But just to suggest that you could start to ask this question a few times in every sitting period, a few times in every walking period, during meals and in between, Is there greed? Is there aversion? Is there delusion in my relationship to what's happening? And you'll find it a very interesting exploration. On days like today, we might find that uh, there's a flood of aversion. Often on first days, there's a lot of sleepiness. And it's not a particularly enjoyable state, you know, until you finally go to sleep and then it's actually one of the better ways to pass the time on the cushion. Or 
body pain in the first few days when I sit, sitting so many hours when I haven't been sitting so much at home, the body goes through a real adjustment, kind of getting used to the posture and getting accommodated to the discomfort of the first few days. Or boredom. You know, we miss the things at home. Life here doesn't look that stimulating or exciting. Long to be somewhere else. An expression of the uh, lack of interest in the neutrality of the experience. So there may be a lot of aversion, a lot of resistance in the first few days. can also be longing for the kind of sweet states you might remember from other meditation retreats. So both greed and aversion are usually big on the first few days. And delusion because we're often away in thought a lot early on. But see if it's possible that um, our meditation can be an expression of a relationship that doesn't have an agenda for something to happen and it doesn't have a struggle against what's happening. That is kind of the sweet spot in meditation practice. No agenda and no struggle. Notice what it feels like when your meditation comes out of that kind of attitude. It's almost like from this place we find, oh, this is really the proper way to meditate. And of course we learn we can meditate and be mindful of agenda or be mindful of struggle. But the difference when both of those are absent is really noticeable. It's a qualitative difference. So continue to check in your mind, the more familiar you become with this place of no agenda, no struggle, no greed, aversion, delusion, the easier it will be to get there. And from this place, the meditation unfolds in a really beautiful way. So there's a little bit about attitude and an approach to meditation, but how can we carry out this observation and and what do we observe? What do we carry out the observing on? So I want to talk about some of the the key terms that we'll be using, but before I do, I kind of want to take a big picture view of what, what we're doing here. And I just want to ask in a kind of broad way, Uh, as a meditator, what do we understand our basic human situation to be? In the most basic terms, what constitutes a human life? Sort of as as observed from the meditator's uh, point of view. Where's Where's the difficulty in it and where's the freedom or release in it? So kind of thinking in a fresh way, I like to orient myself around this quote from Rumi. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing here? I have no idea. Ever feel like that at the start of a meditation retreat? How did we get here? What is up? So another way to say it might be we talk a lot in Buddhism about... uh, our care and compassion for sentient beings. What does it mean to be a sentient being? What does it mean to be sentient? Or you could say conscious. Are you conscious in this moment? Are you sentient in this moment? Well, you're not unconscious, are you? Or if anyone is, could you wake them up? Generally, we're conscious when we're awake, how do you know you're conscious? 
You know, we've all had the experience of going unconscious for a while, either coming out of deep sleep or we fainted or come out of anesthesia or something. How do you know when you're conscious again? Isn't it that things start appearing? And isn't that our basic nature as sentient beings? Things appear to us. If we were unconscious, nothing would be appearing to us. But because we're conscious, things appear. So from a Buddhist point of view, what appears, the Buddha put into six categories. The first are our five uh, physical senses. But rather than paraphrase, let me read you the sutta. This is called a, a sutta on totality from the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the old Pali texts of the Buddha's teachings. Monks, the Buddha said, I will teach you the totality of life. That's kind of bold, isn't it? In one discourse, he's going to teach the totality of life. Einstein didn't say that. Freud didn't say that. Marx didn't say that. Here's the Buddha. I will teach you the totality of life. Listen, attend carefully, and I will speak. What is the totality of life? It is just the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and objects of touch, the mind and mental phenomena. This is called the totality of life. Anyone who talked of a totality beyond this would not be speaking of what they knew about. So basically, it's the five physical senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, the mind, and objects of mind, which for our purposes are primarily thoughts and feelings. We'll elaborate more on this as we go by, but for now, thoughts and feelings are the objects of mind. It's kind of a simple classification. There are just these six categories, the six senses, five physical and one of the mind. And yet, is there anything in your experience that lies outside this list? Can we take it as a comprehensive list of human experience? Let's take it that way as as a platform to work on, at least, as a hypothesis, and, and we'll explore. So basically, our life as conscious beings is that we come into the world, and all these sense experiences have confronted us since we woke up, certainly from the time of our birth, and have been happening pretty nonstop as long as we're awake. Some of them are beautiful, attractive, pleasant, delightful, enjoyable. Some of them are frightening, painful, terrifying, uh, hair-raising, and to be avoided at all costs, we believe. And it's really this, I would say, intense mixture of the pleasant and the unpleasant that makes our human life such a challenging circumstance. If it were all pleasant, we could probably live with that. If it were all painful, in some way we'd just get resigned and numb to the extent that we can. 
but we, we retain this sensitivity to the beautiful and then that opens us up to our vulnerability to what's uncomfortable and unpleasant. And this is really, I think, our basic human situation. We're such sensitive creatures. We're capable of great pleasure and joy, but life continues to present us with difficulties and pain. Moreover, we can't control, as we just talked about a few minutes ago, we can't control the ever-changing flow of these appearances, and we can't control the pleasure and pain ratio. We're just subject to them coming in whether we want them or not. And it's this constant struggle because we have such a, a deep yearning for security. It's this constant struggle to secure ourselves with the pleasant and to push away the painful that really constitutes this round of birth and death. Constantly trying to make the pleasure last and make the pain go away. Where, where might the freedom be in that? Meditation attempts to provide an avenue to freedom through the activation of a faculty called mindfulness. A close synonym we'll explore a little later in this talk is the word awareness. And we find as we activate this quality of knowing and understanding our experience in its pleasant and painful aspects and our relation to it, the mind starts to disengage its tendency to grasp. Understanding comes in of the uh, dilemma that we're caught in, this alternation of pleasure and pain, and we start to develop a non-grasping equanimity that understands this flow. That non-grasping equanimity gives us a place to rest that creates a greater and greater sense of freedom in our life. And in its, in its maturity, in its development, leads, the Buddha says, to the complete absence of suffering, even in the midst of this changing display of pleasant and unpleasant. So it's really the cultivation of this quality of mindfulness that we're here to engage in um, this week and to, to feel the freedom possible from it. So let's talk a little about, a um, little more detail about these experiences that come and their impact on us and then what the quality of mindfulness uh, develops and how it helps. These experiences come alive for us. All the appearances come alive because of our sentient nature or our conscious nature. And in the Buddha's teachings, the faculty of mind that is open to receiving all kinds of experiences is called consciousness. The Pali word is vijnana, and it has a particular meaning in his teachings. It is simply that uh, cognizant factor of mind that knows the bare reality of a sense datum. So a sound arises, and immediately as that sound arises, that consciousness arises in each of uh, your ears. 
And that, that consciousness of just the sound, that knowing quality, is this element of vijnana. It's the most basic part of mind, as the Buddha described it. Vijnana doesn't have any intelligence with it. You could be uh, almost dozing off, and yet that sound could still penetrate. You don't have to do anything verbally with it. You don't have to interpret it or recognize it or think about it. Just that bare pre-verbal knowing of the sound itself, that faculty of the mind is called consciousness. It's what we've been referring to informally as knowing. So knowing and consciousness are synonymous most of the time that we use it. So we all have consciousness. Babies have consciousness. Animals have consciousness. In the Buddhist view, all sentient beings have consciousness. And that simply means that experiences are appearing for beings at their sense doors. We don't have choice about this. We can't decide not to hear. If I ask you not to hear the sound, you can't choose to do that. So it doesn't take volition. It doesn't take intelligence. It's a more or less automatic uh, functioning of our mind and body combination. We have the sense door of the ear, and we have this consciousness factor that receives it. Mindfulness is, you could say, uh, it shares a cognizant quality with consciousness, but it's a higher level of cognition. Mindfulness, and I'd like to use this as our working definition, is the quality that understands what our experience is in each moment. So if you're being mindful and the sound happens, you would notice, oh, sound or hearing. So there's this reflective quality that mindfulness gives that is understanding what is happening to us. The Buddha's main discourse on the practice of mindfulness, as you probably know, is the Satipatthana Sutta. And in it, there's one word that he uses again and again to characterize mindfulness. And he'll say, when the practitioner breathes in, he or she understands, I breathe in. When the practitioner experiences uh, a mind influenced by greed, he or she understands the mind is influenced by by greed. When the practitioner experiences a pleasant feeling, she or he understands I experience a pleasant feeling. This word understand is a translation of the Pali word pajanati, and its root is very similar to the root for wisdom. The word for wisdom is panya. And it could be translated as uh, understanding, discrimination, distinguishing. Sometimes it's a synonym for wisdom. But it, it involves, I hope you see, all of these involve some measure of intelligence. So mindfulness means that we're bringing intelligence to these appearances in consciousness. And we know what's going on. We know when there's an in-breath, when we know when there's a sensation of pain. We know when there's a feeling of happiness or sadness that's happening in us. 
that requires a level of intelligence that the simple consciousness doesn't. It's really this factor of being able to understand our experience that proves to be the liberating factor in our path. So, notice how mindfulness is different from consciousness. Consciousness is quite automatic. Mindfulness sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. It takes a little bit of work in the beginning to cultivate this factor, but it doesn't take a huge amount of work. You know, remember when Joseph asked us to move our arm, it wasn't hard to know that we were moving our arm or hard to know that sensations were being known but it takes a little bit of effort to turn the attention in that direction to know that's what our experience is. Mindfulness requires a kind of intelligence that, for example, I don't think animals have. I don't think animals are capable of carrying out our meditation practice. I can't say conclusively, but again, an example that Joseph has used that that I like, and so I'll borrow it, is something he calls black lab consciousness. And if you've ever watched a black Labrador sort of at work in their daily rounds, you will gather there's not a lot of mindful attention going on. There's a smell and they're off. Or another dog comes in their territory and they're attacking. Or let's say the black lab is somewhere near the kitchen and he gets the scent of a can of dog food being opened Does the black lab go, hmm, a smell is arising at my ear door. Hmm, that is a pleasant smell. Hmm, now I notice desire arising, you know, for the taste of that. Well, I hear the sound of the dog food being put in my bowl. Hearing, hearing. Let's see, should I wander over? Would it be skillful to wander over and have a sniff and a taste of the dog food? That's not the way the black lab works. That's the way mindfulness works. So as a human, we have a choice. If there's a delicious smell coming out from the kitchen, we can ask, should I go to the dining room now and see what's happening? And we can check our watch and know if it's appropriate or not. But the black lab smells, goes. Split-second reaction. So mindfulness is something that uh, is a special quality that we have to work with. And it's the enlightening quality on the path. You know, if honestly, if we look around, a lot of the human world operates on a level that's not much different from the black lab, which is why the world is in the shape it's in. But mindfulness gives us the possibility of really changing our reactions to things. We can put these two together. Normally, mindfulness in in our lineage is uh, carried out on simply the appearances themselves. So we would normally open a retreat like this with instructions on mindfulness of the sensations of breathing. And then we'd expand to mindfulness of other sensations in the body. And then mindfulness of sounds and emotions and thoughts and sights and so on. We've taken a different approach in this retreat. It's fine to notice those things, and we encourage you to notice those things, but we've added and kind of put up toward the front of importance what I would call mindfulness of consciousness. 
when we ask you to notice the knowing of things, which is a synonym for consciousness, we're actually encouraging you to be mindful of vijnana or consciousness itself. So when we, uh, for example, in the meditation that Joseph led this morning, the big mind meditation, where he said, look at the nature of the mind, look at the nature of awareness, it's a combination of emptiness and awareness, that is encouraging you to put the mindful attention and direct it toward this quality of knowing. So we could simply say, be aware of awareness, but in technical the technical language of the early Pali text, what we are practicing in those instructions is mindfulness of consciousness. And for those of you who are interested in the details of this, this practice is part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where the Buddha describes mindfulness of the five aggregates. Consciousness is one of the five aggregates. So this is the link in the Satipatthana Sutta to this instruction. We can pay attention to the knowing itself. And that's what we're encouraging you to do. But it's not easy. Did anybody find that today? Yeah. It's not so easy. Because in my experience, consciousness is the most subtle phenomenon that we can pay attention to. And the other reason it's difficult is that consciousness is what receives objects, right? Consciousness is of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, and feeling. But becoming conscious of consciousness is a little bit of a contradiction because that would be like the eye seeing itself. The eye sees other things. So we can't grasp consciousness with consciousness in that way. We have to sneak up on it sideways. And that, for me, is we have to feel its functioning Consciousness functions moment after moment by revealing things. And as we stay close to the revelation of the appearance, we're close to the consciousness of it, the knowing of it. So if you found that it's too elusive, too subtle, at this point, don't bang your head against it. Go back and pay attention, be mindful of uh, breathing, body sensations, sounds, wherever you find a comfortable base in the the realm of appearances, pay attention there. And little by little, this knowing will become clearer. We'll unfold it more through the instructions, more through the Dharma talks, and and you will get closer and closer to, to feeling it, seeing it. It's a very intuitive process. It can't be grasped like other objects are grasped. So that's consciousness, mindfulness, and mindfulness of consciousness. And then the the next word I'd like to talk a little bit about is this word we've been uh, using quite a lot, which is awareness. Does everybody understand awareness clearly? I don't either. Awareness is a very interesting word. And for those of us who have come up in the, uh, through the suttas of the Buddha's original teachings, It's very interesting to me, there's no word in Pali that we need to translate by the term awareness. There's no term the Buddha used that quite corresponds to our use in English of the word awareness. And yet other traditions of of Buddhism, 
uh, particularly some Tibetan schools, use this word a lot, and it becomes really central in in their teaching. So how how are we using teaching? Uh, sorry, how are we using the word awareness? The way it seems to me, and it's all of a personal take because uh, it can be used differently by different teachers, but that awareness seems to me to be a word that spans consciousness and mindfulness. Or you might say it blends the two. Both consciousness and mindfulness are manifestations of cognition, of cognizing. And awareness is a word that kind of holds both, uh, both ends of the spectrum. For instance, we have said something like um, awareness is the very nature of mind, that it's spontaneously happening, that it's, it's ever-present. That is a description more of what the Buddha called vijnana. It doesn't need to be uh, willed or intended. It's, it's ever-present. Consciousness has that aspect, that it's always happening, um, quite automatic. So awareness conveys things like um, spontaneity, uh, effortlessness, naturalness, and this ever-present sense, a little bit like consciousness has. But awareness, as we use it in English, also has a, a connotation of intelligence. When we say something like, um, are you, were you aware that you were feeling sad? That means really, were you mindful of the fact of sadness that was present in your mind? In that, it's more like mindfulness. So we tend to use awareness in a way that um, evokes both some of the intelligence of mindfulness and some of the natural spontaneity of consciousness. Because mindfulness has a little bit of intelligence intrinsic to it, knowing, understanding what's happening, it's the doorway to wisdom. And it's the wisdom that gets developed from mindfulness that starts to liberate the mind. Well, awareness also has this property of intelligence associated with with the word. So awareness is a nice lead-in also to wisdom. This spontane- the sense of spontaneous intelligence, uh, the feeling of that, the flavor of that, is something that we want you to start to have some faith in. Whether we call it awareness or whatever we call it, this is the refuge that um, we hope you can discover on this retreat. That that natural intelligence and wisdom is always there in us in every moment, just waiting to be recognized. This is from Ajahn Mahabua. Although all phenomena without exception fall under the laws of the three characteristics, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, the true nature of the mind doesn't fall under these laws. The natural power of the mind itself is that it knows and does not die. This deathlessness is something that lies beyond disintegration. So if that's true, if there is this kind of deathless quality in us that is intelligent 
and beyond birth and death, that becomes a very immediate resource for us. And so we, we just need to refine our confidence in that and our ability to touch it, our ability to, to access it or recognize it again and again and again. Doing that, whether we do it through uh, directly pointing to uh, the nature of awareness or whether we activate wisdom by exploring the appearances that come, both have the same power to awaken us. So I don't want to say that this looking at awareness is a kind of different order of meditation. You know, it's not. Mindfulness itself will wake up our wisdom, whatever it's directed to. If it's directed to breath, body sensations, thoughts, sounds, or consciousness itself, they're all liberating uh, practices. The way that mindfulness tends to work in um, our normal practice, as we start paying attention to the different aspects of our experience, the six sense appearances, we start to become interested. And interest is a really critical component. You notice how when you love something, you love watching it? I was just teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock, and there was a, a visitor from Canada who was a, a, on the staff side and didn't know our California birds, but she'd brought a bird book. And she was out the whole month. I would see her for like, you know, an hour at a time, out with her binoculars, scanning the trees and listening to the bird songs for all these new birds that she'd never encountered before. And I could tell from her, her energy and from talking with her a little bit that she loved birds. She loved watching their behavior and learning about their habitats and their flight patterns and their silhouettes in the sky when they flew. And it's that way with all of us. When we love something, the interest comes really naturally. So this, this love for uh, what we're paying attention to The term from the Buddha is called rapture. And we find that that quality of love and appreciation for our meditation grows. You know, the the more we do it and the kind of quieter the mind gets. We love, after a certain point, we love watching the breath and we love observing body sensations because we get so interested in the nature that's living out through this body and mind. As we start to pay attention to the breath, we see each breath is different. And we become really interested in how it's born and how it persists and then how it dies. And we, we stay with an in-breath till the very last fading away. And then we're right there for the movement of the first, sh- first flicker of the out-breath and stay with it until it fades away. And similarly with the other aspects of our experience, the sensations and thoughts and emotions, we really want to understand them because we become so, so interested in this nature that's living in us. As we do, we become really familiar with their individual characteristics. Just like my friend watching the colors and the flights and the sounds of those birds. She got to know each of those birds really well. We get to know the breath really well. We get to know impatience really well. We get to know loving kindness and compassion really well because we start to love them. We start at first to see their individual characteristics. You know, this breath is long, this breath is short, that emotion is fiery, this emotion is very pacific.
But then as we keep observing, we also start seeing without even trying their universal characteristics. Oh, every breath ends. Every thought has a beginning, a middle, and then it passes away. Every mood that I've ever had on this retreat has not lasted. Everything that was pleasant in my life has faded, and I couldn't hold on to it for satisfaction. And nothing lasts forever. So through these, we start to see the characteristics of impermanence, lack of satisfactoriness, and lack of abiding self-structure within the whole experience. So then we take that kind of interest and we see how wisdom grows. We see that when we understand that everything fades and we can't hold on for satisfaction, non-clinging becomes so much more natural. We start to live more from a space of not holding on and not grasping. Then we start to take that, that interest and investigation and wisdom that have developed and we turn it toward the nature of consciousness itself. In fact, one author said that this type of meditation he described as the penetrative focus, free of conceptual elaboration, upon the very nature of conscious awareness. And we discover then the possibility of this kind of refuge for ourselves. There's a Thai teacher who comes to Spirit Rock every spring called Ajahn Jimnian. Ajahn Jimnian is a master of meditation, developed in both uh, Vipassana and loving kindness from the time he was very young. And he has this incredibly joyful uh, appearance and energy. He said that he hasn't had any anger for the last 30 years. And he seems like that because every time I see him, he's just joyful and energetic and outgoing. His favorite mantra is, um, he doesn't speak much English, but this is a little English he speaks. He'll touch space and he'll say, empty, empty. And then he'll say, happy, happy. It's a union of emptiness and happiness. So this is a quote from Ajahn Jumnian about this, uh, this refuge. The best way to develop a great awareness, and he called it, he used the Pali term, mahasati, which means great mindfulness. The best way to develop a great awareness is to rest your attention within that knowing space of consciousness, in the pure space of knowing. If you understand and can rest in this pure knowing, that is the place of the deathless. From this pure awareness that's unmoved by what arises, then you see the phenomena of the world, which all have the nature to arise and pass away. Phenomena show their dharma of impermanence, and this other is the dharma of the deathless. We start to see that most fundamentally, when everything else comes and goes, this is what we are. We are this empty space of knowing in which everything appears. And from the time we were young, everything started to appear. Mother, bottle, milk, kindergarten, high school, career, marriage, income tax, Paris Hilton. Everything appears on that screen, some beautiful, some not so beautiful. But the knowing stays with them all. 
stays somewhat constant with them all. And as we start to place our emphasis, our attention, our trust in that knowing, we start to shift our center of gravity from the preoccupation with the specific objects that are appearing to which we're inclined to cling if they're pleasant or push away if they're unpleasant, to simply rest in this knowing space that is free from greed, aversion, and delusion. Because we notice that the knowing doesn't have preferences. It reveals the painful as easily as it reveals the pleasant. So this knowing already has the right attitude that's free from greed, aversion, and delusion. We trust more and more in that. We put our attention more and more in that. We start to trust our being to that. I'll just close with a quotation uh, from Rumi called Tending Two Shops. Live in the nowhere that you came from, even though you have an address here. That's why you see things in two ways. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high and how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller. Checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So let's just sit for a minute in silence, please. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.